This is the Future of Cybercrime podcast, a new show dedicated to helping security practitioners on the front lines of defending their organization from the cybercrime underground. I'm your host, Zyra Perzada, former Gartner analyst, information security and risk strategist, and storyteller. Now, let's jump right into today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Future of Cybercrime podcast with Kella, where I speak with cybersecurity professionals, perhaps like yourselves, about the cybercrime underground. Today, I have with me Tyler Wrightson, prominent cybersecurity author, an incredible hacker, and the founder of Leet Security, a successful offensive security services enterprise. There's far more to the story, but I'll let Tyler tell you. Thanks, Tyler, for joining me today. Of course, yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So, Tyler, let's start off with your being a professional hacker, or for the business folks, offensive security practitioner. Uh, <laughs> that, and you own your own enterprise, Leet Security, which I briefly just mentioned. Let's talk about all of it. What does it mean to you, first off, to be a professional hacker? Why do you do it? Sure. Uh, so, maybe I'll start with what it means to be a professional hacker. Um, so, mm-hmm. growing up, I'll just say that I started, you know, very young. I got bit by the hacking bug uh, pretty young. Um, So I don't uh, take issue with using the term hacker the way most people use it today, right? To mean uh, criminal or, you know, someone who does something uh, nefarious. So, right, whether people qualify that as being an ethical hacker or professional hacker, whatever, you know, I'm I'm cool with that. Um, So, yeah, so, so for me, it's basically just, me and my team, we simulate hackers. Uh, we sim- actually simulate hackers, criminals, cyber criminals, and, and even in some cases, terrorists, right? So we, we do things that, uh, um, you know, a terrorist might do. Um, but yeah, it basically, it's just, you know, we get authorization from our clients. We determine the threats they're likely to encounter and the methods that they're likely to use uh, to do things that would be impactful to that business. And then we do or simulate those things. Okay, so you're making distinctions among the potential hackers or the motives of the hackers. And uh, do you have a methodology about this? Is there a way that you go about making those distinctions and then deciding as to what kind of attack modes or methods that that hackers would use? Yeah, for sure. Um, So to be perfectly honest, the methodology itself, we typically get to, uh, typically we rarely get to the more mature uh, phases just because organizations today are still so immature when it comes to, to cybersecurity. Mm. Um, so we're, we're so frequently having that conversation about, okay, you know, what testing have you done in the past? What uh, incidents have you experienced in the past? And then, you know, just any type of empirical data about, so again, let's we'll just take, take uh, for example, you know, hospitals or colleges or whatever and say, you know, okay, uh, you know, what empirical evidence is there about the types of threats you're likely to encounter? What are they after, right? What, what are they actually, you know, trying to accomplish? Um, and then make sure we start at the most basic. So I wrote about this many, many years ago. Um, and for me, the uh, the baseline threat I referred to at the time as dumbass threats, uh, <laughs> right? But yeah. the people that wanted to put the book out, they said, maybe, maybe we'll use a different term. So we settled on non-technical threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Because I think a lot of places want to like jump in and say, you know, hey, simulate advanced persistent threats. Right. And what are those crazy methods like, OK, we can do that. But, A, 
uh, <laughs> have you even determined, right, can you just hold up against like the average script kitty? Or in some cases, you know, just some, you know, criminal walking off the street who's going to just try to break in and steal something and walk out. Um, so we could, you know, probably talk about that for, you know, hours on end. In many cases, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to start with a criminal off the street if they're even if they're likely to encounter that because the impact of the business might be lower. Um, but uh, but but I digress. So for us, it, it's really about that. Right? Have a conversation. What have they done before? What incidents have they experienced and what threats and methods are they likely to experience based on their industry, their size, their geography, all of that? All right. So you're taking a, a good sum of characteristics of that company and then putting the kinds of attacks that they would be susceptible to into, into action. But I, what, what it seems like to me is based on what they can handle starting off, like we're not going to invest so much time in a high profile, long winded attack when in yeah. fact, you're not even prepared for the basics. Yeah, exactly. hundred percent. And so all the things that you just summarized um, with all the different characteristics for us, we call that context. And mm -hmm. so I always tell people that, in cybersecurity, especially, but even uh, in life, my favorite word is context, mm -hmm. right? So many people have conversations about, uh, you know, very, very specific nuanced things, but then they lack any context to apply it to the real world. And so for us, we're always talking to our clients and saying, what is the context of your business, the threats you're likely to encounter, what they're going to, you know, try to accomplish, what impact that ultimately will have on your business. And, and so again, for us, that's all, that's just context. And it, it makes sense. You know what I'm worried about? The state of security for a good majority of organizations. Uh, and then, of course, we have to divide them. We're looking at small, medium-sized businesses. I think it's somewhat hopeless in many ways for them in that uh, they're kind of outpriced a lot by oh, yeah. the cybersecurity landscape, um, unfortunately. Yeah, truly. Right? And it seems like a lot of... of uh, vendors are catering to more towards the middle size enterprises and uh, the larger enterprises. So are you working across the spectrum with uh, all kinds of organizations? And what yep. are you finding to be the most dominant problem? Yeah. And I want to come back to your, to your point too, yeah. because I completely agree with the economics being, uh, you know, disadvantaging small businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, I've made that point. Uh, I think the the book, my second book was, uh, is almost 10 years old. And I said it back then that most businesses simply cannot spend enough to deter uh, a hacker that wants to get gain access to the things that, uh, that matter most to them. Um, but it's still 100% true. So I think we can, we can come back to that. Um, but Lee, yes, we, we really run the, the gamut. Um, historically, I would have said, you know, it's only medium to enterprise, partially do that, right? It's just not worth most small businesses time to, to work with us. They're not going to see um, that, uh, you know, they're not going to see the ultimate value that a larger company would. Um, over time, we've scaled down a little bit, mostly by working through uh, partners and other organizations who can, who can take what we do, narrow it down to make it like very, very specific to those organizations um, and, and, and be able to provide value for them. There's still a lot of instances where um, you know, especially for us, like I'm, I'm big into just, you know, spreading the gospel about how to actually protect organizations from hackers and cyber criminals. So a mm -hmm. lot of times we'll just have the conversation and be like, look, here's where you're at today. You're telling me, you know, you don't have these foundational controls. You've never done any type of assessment. You've never done a risk assessment. It's like, 
we can hack into you, but that's just, there's no value in that. You know what I mean? It's like, we're going to tell you stuff you already know. And you know what I mean? You'll be in the same exact spot. So it's like, Hey, look, you know, go work with these other people, deploy some foundational security controls, do a risk assessment. And then, you know, in the future, maybe come back to us. Yeah. So hygiene, start off with hygiene and, and just at least having it in mind. Yeah, exactly. And then mature as your funds seem appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and, yeah, then... funds and risk and all that. Yeah. Mm. So that makes sense. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, thinking defensively and offensively. I'm pivoting here because uh, a good number of enterprises, uh, they, they have a pretty hard time doing what you mentioned, contextualizing their own organization in terms of what the hacker is most likely to exploit. So they can't really think that's what I would define as offensively. They're more on this defensive side of thinking. So how would you describe that distinction? And what would you say uh, the majority of the organizations you've worked with think more like? Oh, man. So this, I think we could, honestly, we could talk about for, for days on end. Um it's so it's such a challenging thing to really convey in a succinct way the difference between the way attackers think and the way defenders think um and it's so important for us right it's one of the things that we're trying to convey everywhere we go uh, but i think the the biggest challenge and again i think that context and uh practicality play a role in this, right? The difference between defenders and uh, attackers. But the fact is, is that at most organization, the defenders have a huge, just a giant list of operational things that they need to do, right? They have, yeah. and, in, and in many cases, even very, very large organizations, the security team is typically um, just tasked with, I mean, ultimately kind of non-security related things. Um, and so, you know, the, 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 one of the things I've said for a while, right. is like, you know, defenders are, you know, trying to juggle, you know, a dozen different balls and the attacker just needs to find that, that one path, that, that one weakness that they forgot. Um, and there's someone at Microsoft that I think summarized it well too, right. How did he, how did he put that? He's like, you know, um, defenders tend to think in lists and attackers tend to think in terms of graphs. And as long as that remains the same, you know, attackers will, will always have the advantage, um, but I, I think part of it too, in my mind, is that defenders almost necessarily come from an entirely different universe, a different path, right? So again, so think of the way most defenders get into their role as defenders, right? They didn't start as attackers and criminals and hackers right yeah they 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 they, they took courses mm -hmm. they went to school um and there's there's nothing wrong with that but i'm saying the path is so completely different it's it's tough to uh convey it in an academic way the difference so my point being criminals start by finding hey how can i uh utilize this knowledge i have for gain right how do I find these weaknesses? How do I exploit them? All, all that kind of stuff. They're constantly looking for uh, new ways to commit crimes and, and hack. Whereas defenders took a completely different approach, which is, you know, hey, educate me on 
how I configure Active Directory securely, right? How, how do I secure a workstation? How do I secure a web application? How do I secure uh, code, right? And that's just, that's completely different. So it's not that um, in a vacuum, one is necessarily better than the other, but it's until you really understand the, the motives and the methods and what a hacker is really trying to accomplish, I feel like you're at a, a real disadvantage. Ooh, that's a big no-no to me. I I just, I think in general, look, in sports, anyone who is, is moving into a defensive posture honestly knows what kinds of moves are most likely on an offensive posture. And then if I transfer learn that as well to general military history, mm. oftentimes there's a good study of multiple kinds of offensive postures to then set up proper defensive postures. Uh, I, I just, it doesn't seem right that defensive postures in any one discipline should be lacking knowledge or strong mm. knowledge in offensive posture. I, I agree with you. And again, that's what's so interesting is that in a vacuum, it would make perfect sense. But the number of times that we have conversations with pure blue teamers, defensive people, mm -hmm. um, where it's clear they don't have an understanding of why they're doing something, right? A and the methods a hacker will actually utilize in their environment to exploit those vulnerabilities that they're trying to protect against. It literally, it happens daily. I mean, I just yesterday I had a great conversation with somebody um, with a CISO about TLS version 1.0, right? Oh, wait, way back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but they're still dealing with it. So the point is, right, and we're talking about, okay, well, what, you know, give me the context of where this, where, right, so for, for the folks listening, right, TLS version 1.0, a lot of vulnerabilities in it, quote unquote, um, with the ability to essentially intercept traffic and unencrypt it, decrypt it, um, right, and, and spy on communication. So, in a vacuum, that vulnerability is not good, right? But you contextualize it with most businesses, and you say, okay, well, what are we talking about? Where do these applications live that 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 uh, utilize TLS version one? Where would the uh, end users exist that utilizes application? And, and, and again, where's that uh, communication traverse? And what would have to happen for a hacker to exploit that vulnerability and, and gain access to that data? Um, and then what data are we talking about? And so the fact is that the majority of the time for organizations just like this, when it's on the inside of their network, the hacker's gonna try at least a dozen other techniques before they get to the point where they're exploiting TLS version 1.0 to any meaningful impact, right? And that's the real key here, right? It's like, you know, mm -hmm. unless we're always talking about impact, just talking about vulnerabilities and exploits is, is virtually meaningless. You know what I mean? It, it truly is. Um, I don't even know how we get off on this tangent, but what- That's a good tangent, it's a good tangent because you're really bringing us into the mind and the process of a hacker just just on the surface we started off which is something i want to get into by the way and we started off just with my question on what's or rather my surprise on what's going on why why are blue teams so not in the know uh and and it brings up so many questions in my mind 
those organizations that have blue teams, very little presence of red teams, but then they're starting to grow it. Why not at the inception create some cross-collaboration and the the uh, the bedrock of a purple team? Why is mm. there so much friction in creating this when it's necessary? Yeah. No tool can supplement human ingenuity. Exactly. And see, right off the bat there, I, I agree with what you just said, which I, I don't think a lot of organizations truly embrace that. They do think that that there's there's go, there's got to be tools that are sufficient enough to test our security, to find the vulnerabilities, to find the weaknesses, to to tell us what we should do, and they're just not there yet because that's not what hackers do. Like I always, uh, you know, maybe half tongue in cheek, tell people who are like, oh, you know, what do you guys do? You're you're on Nessus, you find stuff, and you know that that's it. I'm like, no, that's not what we do because that's not what hackers do. The day hackers just run a tool and then utilize that out output to like plan their attack, then that, that's the day that we'll start doing that. But that's not what happens. Um, so yeah, I feel like we're, I'm going to keep getting so boxy here with you. Oh, no, it's, 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 it's good that we agree here. Vulnerabilities are not purposely embedded in code. They are unearthed. Yeah, yeah found. exactly. So uh, there is the best attempt to create secure code, but then there is the best attempt to break it. And that's the nature of, of, of the discipline. Yeah. That's just the inception of it. So vulnerabilities will always be unearthed, found, and the way that they can be unearthed and found in most cases is by genuine human interaction with it exactly. and work around with it. So it's it's very surprising that people say, well, oh yeah, I'll, I'll go after a tool and technology and uh, there goes my problems. Well, that's funny because yeah. <laughs> they're just catching up. All tools are catching up to what has been, like I said, on earth. So um, then it's, again, I'm worried that most security teams starting off are thinking more defensively than offensively. And I, I want to ask your opinion here. How do we shift that mindset? Mm. It, it's a tough thing. I, I think <clears throat> the number one thing we can do kind of uh, to make it globally applicable to people is to really help them understand the nature of the problem. And then this is one of the things that I'm like preaching everywhere I go, because a lot of people, especially most importantly, decision makers, decision makers do not understand the scope and scale of the problem because we're used we're, as humans, we are very, very bad at understanding what this really means because we're ultimately, we're very good at dealing with face-to-face -face threats, right? Oh my God, that's a snake. I should walk in the opposite direction, right? That makes sense. Or that person has a gun and they look menacing. I'm going to go the other way, right? The problem is that these threats, although they are uh, you know, the, the genesis of them is, is from humans. They operate at millisecond speed and they operate from all across the world. So whereas we're used to dealing with uh, threats and, and issues that, you know, are, are staring us in the face, this opens us up to threats that exist literally anywhere in the world and they, they happen at, at any time. You know what I mean? And again, even intellectually, I know that you and I understand that, but even for us people in the field, it's still like, it's challenging to understand the real implications for every business, you know, what, what that really means. So I really think that, that that's where it starts. Uh, it's, it's said often, 
educate your decision makers, business asset owners, uh, data owners, data asset owners, all about security. And those people have varied ideas about how attacks work uh, and <laughs> most are sensationalized ideas. Yep. So <laughs> let's yep. let's let's rewind a bit back to what you were just briefly uh, scratching the surface on, and then I, I kind of took you away. But I'd like to put you back here. Bring us into the mind and the process of a hacker. How do sure. they build understandings of their targets, and what does their recon process look like? Let's start from there. Yeah, awesome. Um, so. Even before we start on that, I think the, the key again is trying to build as much of an actual picture of that threat and what they're trying to accomplish, right? Um, because historically, right, what are the common threats that people usually use? They say it's, you know, it's a it's a hacker, it's a cyber criminal, it's a hacktivist, right? Right off the bat, just those three generalizations, they're going to have different. Uh, end goals, different motives, and thus different methods to get there. Because So to, to take a super contrived example, if I'm a hacktivist and I just don't like a business, simply knocking them off the internet for a period of time is going to be a, a, good, uh, uh, a good outcome for me, right? Whether that's, you know, knocking down just their, their static website or knocking down their ability to, you know, generate revenue, either of those are, are great for me. If I'm a cyber criminal, um, maybe I can utilize that to uh, extort them based on the business that, that they run, but that might not be enough to uh, really get them to pay me what I want them to pay. So thus maybe my uh, end goal is, is actually more like ransomware, right? I can really tie up their whole business, make it so they can't generate revenue for long periods of time, um, and maybe then I can get them to pay. So anyway, I, I digress, the point being, um, it's understanding that first for us to truly understand the motive. So I'll, I'll start with um, at a high level and just say um, hacker slash cyber criminal, right? Because those are typically what we're what we're uh, simulating. Sometimes we'll be simulating, you know, uh, nation state level threats and, and things like that. But but I digress. To keep to keep this somewhat practical, uh, we'll just say uh, hacker slash cyber criminal. So the first thing that we that we seek to do is identify as much about the technical environment uh, of the target organization, and I think this mirrors uh, pretty well most hackers or cyber criminals. The key difference here is that, generally speaking, I think there's a, a lot of arguments to be made for um, individual hackers or cybercrime groups sticking with the vulnerabilities that they know, right? So they they have their standard playbooks. <clears throat> and so they may simply start by looking for uh, crimes of opportunity, you know, where they're just going to scan the whole internet and say, okay, who's vulnerable to this, you know, point and shoot vulnerability. Cause I know I can, you know, typically take this to, to uh, an end result that I like. Um, but I digress. So when we're specifically trying to target an organization, we say, you know, we know they got lots of money. They got, um, you know, a, a team size where they probably don't have, you know, uh, many full-time uh, blue teamers, if any, and they probably don't, you know, invest a lot in cybersecurity. I want to identify all their technical resources first. And for from from my my perspective, you know, um, I always favored um, technical vulnerabilities over social engineering because I know social engineering is always a good backup. Um, but 
social engineering, especially things like uh, phishing and vishing, can tip your hand to the defenders relatively oh, yeah. quickly, right? Um, and I know that that's not necessarily true for all hackers and cyber cyber criminals, right? They they may start with social engineering because again, it's it's easy. You can blast out you know same message to you know thousands of potential victims. Um, so for us, we, you were gonna. Interject. I was gonna just say that that's a very easy way to lend yourself to attribution. So it's like yeah, yes, exactly move away from that for a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so for us, this uh, generally falls into, we try to identify all of the uh, domains that they have any association with. Uh, so this isn't just uh, domains that they um, own and operate. This could be uh, third-party domains or uh, sister companies, um, parent-child companies, that type of thing. Um, we're looking for any data that's out there through uh, like public breach data, right? So we'll, we'll collect uh, email addresses and, and uh, breach creds that way. We'll look for public data repositories. So things like uh, Pastebin, GitHub, you know, Google dorking and keyword searches and all that kind of stuff. And just find find whatever we find. You'd be surprised some of the, the, the weird things we've found in the past. And so uh, normally uh, for as a hacker, our process after that would be to then start to map you know, enumerate those systems, identify vulnerabilities, and then say, okay, given all of these vulnerabilities, what's our what's our best course of action? Um, but again, depending on the, the engagement, truly for us, whether or not it involves social engineering, um, as well as you know, involving the client at that point, saying, hey, look, here's everything we identified, everything you own. Um, you know, here's what we want to start to target. You know, and getting approvals. Uh, but again, that hacker obviously doesn't have that to, to worry about. Yeah, <laughs> not the approval side, no. Yeah. <laughs> not, not worrying about their downtime, not at all. I, <laughs> all right. So, so you, this is this is the recon process right at the start. Uh, let's talk about a pretty common exploit example. Something that, uh, through your experience, you've said, "Oh, why is this so common? Why is this the easiest thing to do?" Sure. So when it comes to, I'd say there's a couple. Um, do you want me to start with any particular phase of the attack? Because the one that jumps to mind for me is <clears throat> internal issues to the network, primarily with uh, credential reuse, things like uh, lateral movement past the hash, issues in Active Directory, Oh like, God! Oh, AD problems are renowned. Let's yeah. let's 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 touch on let's touch on that. Why? Because uh, everyone who's listening who is a security practitioner, come on! <laughs> like, yeah, yeah so. yeah. so there's so many good nuggets here. So many good nuggets. Um, so let's start with the fact, and again, this goes back to what you were asking before, which is, you know, the difference between how defenders think and how attackers think. So I, I don't think we may have run across a single blue, blue team that had heard of Bloodhound and had run Bloodhound in their internal network. So what Bloodhound does is like looks for um, paths between uh, hosts and credentials, which you already have access to in a Windows domain, and easy paths to high value targets, things like 
um, members of domain admins, enterprise admins, schema admins. Um, it does a, a whole slew of other things, but let's just like keep it relatively high level. And so right off the bat, right, there are so many instances where you can say definitively, this organization was compromised and the hacker ran Bloodhound in their environment, right? So one of the first things I would want to do as a defender is run Bloodhound in my environment and see exactly what the hacker is going to see, right? Um, and we've, we never run into that, ever. It's like at a very, very high level, right? We'll have conversations where we're like, you know, the, the client is saying terms like lateral movement and maybe they have an understanding of past the hash, um, typically not. But then we'll try to bring that into the practical arena and be like, okay, so what are you doing? What have you done about that, right? Because it's ultimately a relatively easy thing to restrict lateral movement, at least in the way that attackers will be able to identify it and then how they'll exploit it, right? There's, um, so there's, there's LAPS, there's Local Administrator Password Solution, which is a Microsoft thing that they, you know, is, is free. Um, and there's great write-ups on how to use it. It's ultimately not very complicated. Um, and so what that, so maybe, sorry, maybe I should take a small step back because I don't, I don't want to lose people on this. this is such a good um, specific thing that we exploit. I think the, the times that it jumps out where we were unable to exploit past the hash and lateral movement, it's like maybe once or twice in hundreds and hundreds of, of yeah. And those are extreme environments. Like the only one that actually jumps to mind for me is um, an environment where they had a Windows domain, but they ultimately had literally no Windows machines joined to the domain. It was just Macintosh computers. Oh, that doesn't count. <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't crazy. count at all. It's crazy. Uh, whoa. But so, here, so, so what this means is when you configure the same set of credentials on a Windows computer, workstation or server, we can utilize those credentials to quickly identify where else they exist in the environment and utilize them to authenticate to that machine and do, and do things. And so the typical problem is that most organizations, they have uh, local administrator accounts <clears throat> that they use to manage workstations. And then they have sometimes uh, different credentials where uh, all of their servers have you know, a local administrator account. In many organizations, right, they'll split those up into, into two big groups and they'll say, okay, our workstation admin is, you know, whatever, workstation dash admin, and they all have the same password. And that way, you know, whenever we need to go log in locally and, and troubleshoot something, we can do that. Then we also have the same on servers. We have, you know, server dash admin with different password, it's more complex, and we think that's secure. Um, so the, the, the problem is that, especially given that configuration where it's a local administrator, uh, we can very, very easily, we compromise one asset. Uh, we, we obtain those hashes and without even needing to crack them, this is the key. We don't even need to have to crack that hash. We can authenticate to um, any other system where those exist with administrator privileges. There's all these other controls you have in place. I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, gloss over those for now because those typically aren't, aren't in place. Um, but again, the key here is because of the way uh, Windows works, and this is, um, Microsoft has stood behind this for years, even though most people say this is ridiculous, you shouldn't be able to utilize those um, to authenticate. And they say, well, that's by design, it's essentially a feature um, and not an issue. Um, 
So the, the key here is that it is, <clears throat> this technique is extremely well known by hackers. Um, the tooling exists in probably at least a dozen different languages, likely more where it's literally point and click. Like we, you know, I, I could literally um, walk, you know, your grandmother through it and say, here's the, the commands, right? Run these and you can quickly identify where else in the environment uh, do these credentials exist? Some organizations get a little bit tricky and they'll have um, different usernames, but the same password, which doesn't really help them ultimately at all. It's very, very easy for us to enumerate those uh, accounts and still utilize the password again in its hashed form. So we don't need to crack it. Um, and so again, the, the, the only real true solution to this is to not reuse passwords. And That's so there, That's yeah, the password problem at yeah. the end of the day. Yes, yeah. which as a quick aside, I understand that that is easy to say and extremely challenging to implement mm -hmm. because yeah. here's the trick. I've been in environments. We, so we, we did a red team test uh, for an organization where we were um, trying to live off the land, no, no real quote unquote hacker tools. Um, just so we could fly under the radar. Um, and we were still able to identify instances of uh, password reuse um, and utilize that to, to spread across the network. Um, so the point is, is that this is one of those instances where I, I think this might be a, a good example of um, defenders thinking in terms of lists and hackers thinking in terms of graphs. Most defenders are like, okay, I'll identify all my machines. I'll, I'll make sure I've reset those passwords or I've used labs or I've used ships or something else. Um, and then I'm good, I move on with my life. It's like, good, that's a good start. But what is going to actually happen if a hacker lands on in your internal network? What are they going to do? What tools will they use? What will they try to accomplish? And so again, for us, we don't need all of your machines to share the same credentials. If you literally have one machine where those credentials are shared, that can be a great starting point for us. We can quickly identify those machines because of the way Active Directory works. It's literally a query to identify all your domain join machines. It'll give us that information and we'll check all of those machines if we have access to those with the, with the hashes we have. So it could literally be that single machine that you forgot or was powered off at the time that you were doing your, your password resets. We found that and now we're utilizing whatever's on that and we've identified new credentials. We've identified new tokens that exist on that machine and then that process repeats. Um, so again, that, I think that that's a good example of kind of this whole context of where's the defender missing the mark? Um, what are those common techniques that, that hackers are utilizing? Um, mm. Why does the attacker have so many advantages? Um, why is it so challenging for defenders? Like all of that. I feel like like lateral movement past the hash, credential reuse, all of that is like a, a pretty good example. It's so easy to lose sight. Thank you for that example, by the way, because it, it brings up this one point. It's so easy to lose sight of just how difficult hygiene is. Uh, when, when organizations start to follow the defense in depth ideology and start to build control upon control, they also inherit the difficulty of hygiene yeah. across all said controls. And as they expand as well, their digital enterprises, so they must apply that hygiene across all assets if they're known. And rarely do organizations all really know <clears throat> all of their assets. So uh, yeah, it is, it's, it's not a losing battle. I don't think it's a losing battle. I think we're in this discipline because 
it is a battle to fight. I mean, yeah. all of yeah. crime in the world may seem like a losing battle, uh, but uh -huh. we're very grateful for the, you know, the, the area of, of peace we can create to evolve as yeah. humans. So same here, right? Yes. You said some really good stuff there. And I like that you're calling it hygiene, because I think that that that's a good way to convey that we're talking about like fundamentals here, right? And so when you compare that to like hygiene at hospitals, right? Or where people are like, I just dealt with some sick people. I got to wash my hands and go see the next sick, sick person, right? That's easy for us to comprehend. But I've been talking about this for years. Again, it, it kind of started uh, before the book, but I called it um, ambiguous causality. So the same people you're trying to teach that hygiene to of, you know, you just left uh, the operating room, you got to wash your hands again before you go deal with somebody else sick. That's easy. But when we say, okay, you reused a password, you know, from Facebook eight years ago, and you utilize one that was similar internal, and then you went and, you know, whatever, you know, visited a seemingly innocuous website, right? All of those things connected for, for you to uh, get your account compromised. And that has um, an absurd impact on the business because that was their foothold into deploying ransomware, right? Try conveying that as hygiene to most people, even though we are talking about, right, the password selection and not, and not reusing passwords as one of those fundamental, like, hygiene tasks. That's one of our challenges, right? It's like, we're talking about things that Again, do I don't know if I can if I conveyed that well enough to you, right? That that whole thought of like th these things that we're trying to like educate intelligent people on, yeah. let alone an average end user that doesn't care about this kind of stuff. It's very very challenging. Oh yeah, oh yeah. We're we're going up against multiple factors. Attackers is but a factor. I mean, everyone says that's the factor. No, there's time. <laughs> You're only yeah, yeah. paid. For so much of your time to protect an enterprise, they don't even care if they have an MSSP. Yeah. There are humans that are constrained by time to apply their specific knowledge. Exactly. So you may have some great people in that 24-7, 365. You may have some people that are really tired. You may like, yeah, this is exactly. also a very sensitive variable. And then there is also the world impacting humans. So when they come to their work, what kind of optimal state are they in? to manage and handle this. It's so yeah. much it's so much easier to commit crime because the risk idea is totally different. I was literally just going to say that. Yeah. Right? Yeah, totally. So I this is also one of my core things when I'm like spreading the gospel is there is zero mutual assured destruction in yeah. cybercrime. In 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 nation state threats it changes a little bit because there is some mutual assured destruction. But the the best case scenario for you when you're dealing with cyber criminals and hackers is to stop them during an incident. There's no striking back. I can't say, well, you hit me. I'm going to hit you just as hard. And that will make you second guess hitting me again. Yeah, That, that does not exist. It's not no. even, even when people talk about, right, the hack back laws, right? That still doesn't apply. That that doesn't make it to where you're striking them back, you know, the, the same at, 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 you know, don't even get me started on, on how ineffective it would be because a lot of times you'd be likely, you know, hacking back some, you know, innocent third party. Um, but I digress. The, the point is, right, there's, there's, the, the, there's frankly, hackers, true, true hackers and cyber criminals are essentially cowards, right? Because it's like they have nothing to lose, 
right? They're, they're putting themselves at zero risk virtually, um, especially with some of these countries where it's, you know, um, A, truly not illegal. Um, and then in other countries, it's just like, they don't care, right? What is Russia going to hand over their their hackers because they, yeah. you know, we, we filed a complaint? Like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, I we, we will never really have, I think, a proper empirical study to discuss what the main motive behind uh, threat actors is. There are several interviews from uh, hackers across different platforms who state, oh, I was in a bind. Uh, one of the reasons why a lot of crime in the world exists is because people are disenfranchised economically. And so they must find something to supplement that lack of economy. And that's where, you know, they, they have a uh, no bounds on on their perception of risk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then there are others that truly find the thrill, uh, and and then maybe it just all comes together. And it's yeah. not only thrilling, but it's also extremely profitable. Yeah. It's oh my a god. Super profitable enterprise. I know. I know. Especially given where a lot of these people are coming from, it's just it's absurd. Yeah, you know it, what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like going to your local gas station. And causing a you know a fit, it's really lots of money on the line. Oh my god, I know, I know, it's crazy. Um, and and I guess <laughs> even I'm I, I'm I'm going crazy now on that. But uh, <laughs> all right, um, let's go to incident response teams. You have been a lead security engineer behind multiple incident response processes at various national enterprises. Let's talk about some significant lessons that you learned. Yeah. I mean, I want to give you legitimate, authentic answers without it seeming like I'm putting spin on it. But I'll tell you one of the areas, again, because it's like the way we approach everything is there is even an incident response. There's such an extreme lack of understanding of the attacker, even from like well-known, reputable incident response response companies is it a pride and confidence problem like we did everything on the checklist we can't possibly think how anyone could um no i think it's more an issue of of, uh scale right so it's like like the 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 sheer number of open uh cybersecurity positions and all that kind of stuff right Mm, bring it all together yeah that makes total sense and so it's like Like if you look at the way we, we market Lee, it's it's a it's a it's like a, a real duality, right? Where we're, a lot of our marketing is actually geared towards pen testers that we want, right, to join our team. So are you gonna find offensive security minded people that love hacking and breaking security and say, well, you're not really gonna do that, you're gonna help us respond to incidents, right? And so I I I just see um I mean, for lack of a better way to put it, it's just like a, you know, a, a skills gap there. You know what I mean? It's like, you've got, you, these are smart people. They, they are 100% bringing value, right? I don't want to say that. But one of the, one of the surprising things is that a lot of times, like, even when it comes to like, understanding based on the IOS, the indicators of compromise and the uh, tools that they see during an incident, it's surprising that they don't immediately understand, oh, okay, this is what 
phase of the kill chain the attacker is likely in and what they were trying to accomplish and thus what we should do about that. Um, you know, a lot of times it's way more, you know, following traditional playbooks of incident response. And frankly, yeah. as a quick, as a quick tangent, I really think that that, that is one of the biggest issues with um, cybersecurity in general is too much academic best practice advice and not enough practical pragmatic advice because again, like in a vacuum, if this followed a similar course to other uh, industries or business functions or, or things like that, then that would be fine, that would work. But this evolves way too quickly. And I've said for years um, mm. that uh, cybersecurity, cybercrime is 100% without a doubt the most dynamic field in the world. And I haven't found anyone to give me a, uh, an argument to prove otherwise. And my argument is that by dictionary definition, when you're dealing with criminals that don't have to follow rules and laws and ethics, and you're talking about the size and scale of cybercrime and cybersecurity, that it has to be the most dynamic, right? So, so what are some of the things that come to mind to you that are like extremely dynamic fields right now? There's actually only one in my mind that, that could start to compete with being the most dynamic field, but I don't think it's there yet. How would you describe a field? I always come back to semantics, like disciplines that are dynamic to what end? Everything is evolving to some end. Uh, this is just highly immature. So if we find a yeah. proper parallel, something that's been around for 20, 25 years, it has to be then technology-based. It could be data and analytics or the maturity of, of the application of analytics. Yeah. Uh, that's, so let's, uh, let's take data analytics, right? So when it comes to data analytics, right, that there are still um, at least some, like so let's say GDPR, right? There's restrictions on what we can do with data. And you know how much we can collect and process and all that kind of stuff, um, and there's ethical boundaries with that, right? So sure, there's some companies that uh, may skirt those ethical boundaries, but they hopefully get fined or go out of business. Those same restrictions don't exist for cybercrime, right? Mm -hmm. They'll say, right, okay, there's there's these there's these these you know, laws and boundaries, but I can, I can ignore those. And in some instances, I can specifically use the implications of those to my advantage because I am um, actually, you know what, ironically, GDPR, HIPAA and all that are a good example of that. If I know a company has to comply with GDPR or HIPAA, compromising their data just became more valuable to me because I can extort them for more money. Because they probably don't want a big, you know, uh, you know, press release about all the data that I'm, I'm sharing with the world. Mm. Like, so, so do you see what I mean? Like th those those things, those restrictions. And so I, I typically use things like, you know, uh, biotech or space travel or whatever. Again, it's like those have very extreme limitations with like, you know, you've got to file with the FDA. You've got you got to go through trials, you've, you know. You, you've got to market your product and find someone that wants to buy it. It's like none of that exists for cybercrime. They're just, you know, trying to find victims and, you know, committing crimes and, you know, any way that they can easily make money, they're just going to do it. 
sounds like crime. <laughs> it's just, it yeah. sounds, it sounds just like crime. That's, that's what it is. Uh, to the nature of why there is so much education and not so much practicality in the field. I, I, I am starting to believe that the academic discipline around cybersecurity in education systems or across certification, like credited certification um, courses is suffering the same problem all of academia is suffering. Mm. Putting noses in the books and not in real life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately. And so I, I wouldn't single it out alone. It's really sad that, hey, this is a this is a 25-year-old, somewhere around their discipline, uh, as in formalized in the enterprises, right? Just, just that. I don't want to yeah. go all the way back. Uh, and, and it's still suffering from understanding itself and what it looks like and getting some respect in organizations. Mm, yeah, yeah. And now people are being asked to join because there are large gaps in security and in oversight, and they're asked to upskill real quick. Doesn't matter if you have one cert or two, what they're about, how, if it fills my gap, I'll take it. Or if it's, you know, if it looks like you're competent enough, we'll teach you up on it, but we really need to cover these holes, cover these holes for us, put your yeah. two hands on them. And then other holes are popping up all the time. It just seems like this is the place where the discipline is at right now. Yeah. Um, Unless you have, um, unless you have some ideas on how to change that, I I think that one of the things that's missing is just proper, practical, hands-on apprenticeship and mentorship. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like that, and it's funny because that's one of the things that that we've implemented internally. Like we have, we call our green people that come in, they go through an apprenticeship, right? There there is a a, a period of time where they're you know learning and uh, and following people that have been been doing it. To be perfectly honest, I wish I had more of an answer as to how to fix those like high level problems. Um, I, I think I'd be uh, far, far, far more uh, rich <laughs> if I had the answer. Um, uh, what is right? it? Basketball the... players don't just read the books, they go play. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Scientists yeah. are scientists because they practice science. They just yeah, don't eat science. So. Touche, touche. So it's funny because I do think that overall <clears throat> academia, colleges, higher ed are falling short like we, we've we have moved past the importance of uh higher ed um clearly uh globally a lot of people have not um figured that out for themselves yet um but there's also there's still a uh there's still an important piece for them to play right mm -hmm. and it's funny because so i i have a a close friend of mine um Brian Nussbaum, he's a PhD at uh, UAlbany. He teaches cyber, uh, cybersecurity related stuff. Um, and we've had that conversation, you know, about like, hey, look, you know, <laughs> uh, why do colleges kind of take this approach? He's like, well, you know, our college especially is a research facility. And so it is supposed to be less about practicality and, you know, hands at the keyboard work and more about how do we continue to, you know, evolve and do research and yada, yada. Um, so I think that I was like, oh, that's actually, that's a valid point. That, that makes sense, right? It's, they, it is a very different thing to teach somebody to be a good 
um, researcher, forward thinker, you know, help things evolve versus somebody who's like, hey, look, we need a SOC analyst and we need you to watch and make sure nothing bad is happening, right? Those are two very different uh, skill sets. Um, but yeah, overall, um, I mean, the, 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 vast, I, the vast majority of everyone on, on my team, I don't know what their uh, degrees are in or what college I went to, all, all of that, because I don't care because that's not the practical stuff that, that we need for you to be a good, you know, hacker. Um, but yeah, I, I digress. No, no, you don't, you don't. Uh, hey, universities, get people in labs and have them play in sandboxes. Yes. <laughs> that's it. Uh, why do I have to go take science courses and have required labs? Why do I go take all the Cal courses I had and have another required lab that is just another whiteboard, go put me on a computer yeah. in undergraduate cybersecurity courses and tell me, let's figure out how to fight. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's funny. So I taught at UAlbany uh, for a semester to kind of like see what was going on in, in college and all that kind of stuff. Um, and it was super basic. It was like we set up, <clears throat> I walked people through installing Kali Linux, doing some initial, you know, pen testing uh, tactics. Um, you know, doing some, doing some quote unquote hacking, setting up a little lab. It was a, it was a very small lab. And the most surprising thing was like, basically all the students were like, this is amazing. This is the most hands-on thing we've done ever in college. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, hey. <laughs> you've done? like oh my God. Um, and props to, um, there's a woman, Karen, and, uh, she was at, at Adirondack, um, college i think it's just that suny adirondack um and she was pumping out phenomenal uh students for the same thing she would put them through practical hands-on stuff and we had hired a couple of them actually i think one of the people on my team right now he, he was from there as well um but uh but yeah it was like there's a clear difference between you know kids coming out of college who it's like you know just just weird choices of you know what they've pursued and no practical hands-on versus like these kids who may have had, again, like, you know, their degrees might've been in something unrelated, but the, that, that hands-on time was invaluable. So. Well, there it is. <laughs> so I think in these, um, in this brief time, we posited a very good uh, suggestion forward. I don't know if we can solve global problems, but we can make little steps there. Uh, all right. Well, I've got, I've got one last question for you. It's always around advice for the listeners. What would you advise to cybersecurity practitioners listening in? And let's take this for those uh, in the classic sense, offensive security practitioners, and then the classic blue team hmm. defensive security practitioners. Yeah, great, great. Um, so for, to try to give like true practical advice for all offensive people, um, maybe it's the same, know your enemy, right? So if you're trying to uh, get better at network pen testing or web application pen testing, or physical security, whatever it is, go spend time with the people who are tasked with uh, creating or defending those systems on a regular basis and understand their challenges and thus your opportunities for uh, 
new attack surface, new, new, new vulnerabilities, that, that type of thing. And so the same is absolutely true. Um, and again, I hope this, this doesn't sound uh, uh, like I'm just saying it out of uh, self-interest, right? The reason why Elite focuses on what we do, uh, on, on what we do um, is because there's such a need there and not, not, not the reverse. Um, but the point is defenders have to take into account the attackers and really understand them. Because again, in a, in a, in a vacuum, regulations and best practices make sense, but you have to apply them to the context of your environment and say, given the business I'm in, where we exist, how we generate revenue, what we're trying to, to do, given all of that, how is a hacker actually going to attempt to identify our attack surface, then build attack plans? How will they go about attacking us? What is their end motive? What are the tools they'll utilize um, and go from there? And, and again, I, I, that's just probably the number one uh, failing failure that I see with most defenders is like, it's just a complete lack of even trying to understand that there's a real human on the other end who's trying to attack them. Ah, okay, this is great. This is great. Tyler, might have you on for another one to talk about the evolution of Purple Teaming. Oh, cool. It yeah, I love like, to. It seems like we're ready for that yes. uh, at any stage. Cool. Building cool. a cybersecurity function, even for those people just focused on compliance, compliance. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. Um, and if you want to, we could always, I could, we can make that very practical with like how organizations could really um, build or at least run through some Purple Team exercises because I'm, Huge in that, love it. So, oh, I absolutely will. Well, we'll get awesome. we'll get this one out to the listeners, Tyler. Oh. I am so appreciative of your time today. Oh, you likewise. Yeah, we just had some great conversation. You do amazing work across universities. You do the same in your own enterprise, and you have just varied hobbies outside of the field as well, and also enterprises. So, uh, you, you go to show that a lot can be done with passion and with curiosity and practice, especially cool. practice. That's what Leet does. Uh, thank you. And last bit, where can folks find you? How can yep. they get in touch with you? Uh, so with me uh, personally, uh, the best is either on LinkedIn. So just Tyler Wrightson with W. Um, they can check out LeetCybersecurity.com. So Leet is L-E-E-T slang for Leet. Um, yeah, those are probably the two best places. All right. I'll go ahead and put those in the episode description. Oh, cool. awesome. um, thanks. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, for sure. And folks, thanks for tuning in again on the Future of Cybercrime podcast. I always end it on this note. We love to stay collaborative. That means if you have any ideas, comments, perspectives, no matter how wild, go ahead and talk to us and comment and get involved. This is meant to be a conversation, not just with the guests of the podcast and myself, but with you too. So look forward to hearing from you and until next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cybercrime podcast brought to you by Kella. For the latest episodes, please visit ke-la.com or search Future of Cybercrime on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks.
and we'll catch you on the next episode.